Welcome to the Life Church of Kansas City podcast. Please consider following, sharing, and supporting by giving at tlckcmo.com. May you be blessed by the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, let's turn quickly to the book of Daniel, chapter 3. We'll read beginning at verse 13 down to verse 18. The Bible tells us familiar passage of Scripture. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Verse 15 says, Now if you are ready at the time that you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and you worship the image which I have made, then good. All's good. We'll call it a day. We'll move on with our life and we'll just call it even. Everything is going to be okay. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God who will deliver you from my hands? Starting at verse 16, some of my favorite verses in Scripture, it says that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. The King James Version, they say, we don't have to be careful in our answer. In other words, we don't have to think twice. We don't have to pause and have a powwow. We don't have to have a sidebar to figure out what we're going to say. It says in verse 17, if that is the case, the God that we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. In verse 18, what a powerful verse. They look at that ungodly king and say, but if not. We're serving you notice. We want you to know, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. For a few moments here this morning, I want to borrow from this story and preach to us from the simple subject, worship wars. Worship wars. Would you just close your eyes and one more time, let's ask the Lord to help us this morning. God, we are grateful for your presence that is so evidently in this room. I thank you for the spirit of worship that we have felt. I thank you for the ministry that has happened through the lives of these young people as they have reminded us about your love that is fighting for us, Lord. I thank you for all that you have accomplished during this youth weekend. But God, I'm praying one more time that you would make our, our hearts sensitive to your word, that you would help us, Lord, to be challenged and quickened by your word, that today your voice would be the loudest voice that we would hear. And as a result, God, we would leave this room forever changed and forever challenged to be all that you have called us to be. At the end of it all, we will give you all the glory in the name of Jesus. Everybody say amen. You can be seated. It was in the summer of 1989 that there were students who were in the communist-led nation of China who began to actively protest against their government, calling for things like democracy, for free speech, and for free press. Having had enough, the government demanded that the protest should be stopped, and they began to use force against their citizens to take back control. In fact, there are some of you in the room today who would remember the scenes that played out during the course of these couple of days. On June 4th, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of protesters who were killed. And there were over 10,000 who were arrested in what would later be known as the Tiananmen Square Massacre. However, on the following day, on June 5th, the day after those brutal killings, there was a powerful scene involving a fleet of tanks that was caught on video. That video was later smuggled out of the country and it was played on news stations all around the world. 
During this time, there was a journalist from Time Magazine named Stuart Franklin who was on the scene, and he recounted the story this way. He said, at some point, there were shots that were fired, and tanks carried on down the road towards us, leaving Tiananmen Square behind, until they were blocked by one lone protester. He described in this way, he said he wore a white shirt and black trousers, and he held two shopping bags in his hands. As the tanks came to a stop, the man gestured towards the tanks with one of the bags, and in response, the lead tank attempted to drive around the man, but he repeatedly stepped into the path of the tank in a show of nonviolent action. After repeatedly attempting to go around rather than crush the man, the lead tank stopped its engines, and the armored vehicles behind it seemed to follow suit. There was a short pause with the man in the tanks having reached a quiet but still impasse. In April of 1998, Time Magazine included the picture that you'll see on the screen that they titled The Unknown Rebel. This title was given in reference to the fact that even today, the exact identity of this man that stood in front of those tanks is still not known. But Time Magazine included it in a feature that was titled Time 100, The Most Important People of the Century. In November of 2016, Time included this photograph by photographer Jeff Widener in Time 100, the most influential images of all time. This morning, I asked the question, why? What was it about this image? What was it about this man that drew the attention of people all around the world? I would simply argue today that it was because of the perceived power of one man that I believe didn't intend to set out to be a hero that day. I don't think that individual woke up that morning and said, I'm going to do something today that is going to be remembered in history. I don't think he ever dreamed that he would be read about centuries or decades later. I don't think this was a man that was driven by external power or position, but there was something on the inside of this man, a strength and a resolve that caused him to be willing to stand in the face of sheer evil and make a bold statement that I refuse to bow. I refuse to bow. Long before there was a man who took on a fleet of tanks armed just with two shopping bags, There were three Hebrew boys who were faced with a similar decision to bow or not to bow. When we consider the context of the book of Daniel, we find that the Jewish people have been taken into captivity by the Babylonians. We read at the early part of Daniel chapter 1 that the king Nebuchadnezzar has instructed certain of the young men to be brought to Babylon. We must understand that these were not just any young men. These were not just the typical average young men, but Daniel chapter 1 verse 4 describes them this way. These were young men in whom there was no blemish. They were good looking. They were gifted in all wisdom. They possessed knowledge. They were quick to understand. They had the ability to serve in the king's palace. And they were people whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. These were the cream of the crop. And Nebuchadnezzar said, I want them in Babylon. We find that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were three of these young men. The king knew something very important. He knew that in order to rule these young men well, that they must be assimilated into the Babylonian culture, that everything about them would need to conform to Babylon's way of life. 
Everything from their learning and their language to their religion and worship would need to change so that he could rule these young boys well. We find that this process began the moment they stepped foot in Babylon. As the first thing that we read that happens is that the king has their Hebrew names changed. We find that Hananiah, that meant Yahweh is gracious, is changed to Shadrach, which meant command of Aku, Aku being the Babylonian moon god. Mishael, meaning who is what God is, changed to Meshach, who is what Aku is. Azariah, Yahweh will help, changed to Abednego, servant of Nebo, another of the Babylonian gods. And it is my opinion this morning that this was not by accident. But rather, this was an intentional effort on the part of King Nebuchadnezzar to redirect the focus of these three young Jewish boys away from Jehovah and onto the gods of the Babylonians. Because Nebuchadnezzar was no fool. Nebuchadnezzar was not ignorant. And Nebuchadnezzar understood something very important, that if I could change the object of their worship, I can influence the way that they will choose to live their life. If I can get their worship, I will change the direction of their life. So it is as we pick up the text from our story, we find that Nebuchadnezzar has instructed a statue to be built. The Bible gives the dimensions to be 90 feet high by 9 feet wide. He builds this statue and he issues this decree that when you hear the music begin to play, wherever you are in the country, That is your sign to fall prostrate on the ground and bow in reverence to the statue that I have built up. Now, I'll be honest with you, growing up in Sunday school, I can remember being in a Sunday school class and one of my teachers would pick up this postcard and as they were teaching the story of the three Hebrew boys, they would depict the statue of Nebuchadnezzar in a very particular way. Can you put that picture on the screen? I remember seeing them show a picture similar to this. Always the statue was in the likeness of Nebuchadnezzar. And I'll be honest, that very well may have been the case. But as we look at this, there are many scholars who would tell us that while there were many cultures of that day that would view their king as divine, Babylon was not one of those cultures. So many scholars would tell us, and scripture is not clear, that this was made in the image of Nebuchadnezzar. Many scholars would argue that the statue was actually erected in the image of one of the chief Babylonian gods. It's with this in mind that we've got to understand when we read the account of Daniel chapter 3, that what we are witnessing, the command to bow, is more than just a celebration of an incredible feat of human craftsmanship. We've got to recognize with this in mind that it was more than just about honoring a king or his accomplishments. This was about more than just showing that we were subject to governmental rule. But what's happening in this story is much deeper than that. Believe that underneath the surface of this story, there is spiritual warfare that is being waged for worship. Somebody say worship. There is spiritual warfare that is being waged to put people to the test to say who or what is going to be the object of your worship. We find that that command to bow was significant as it would represent humility before. It would represent submission to the one who was being honored, bowing before this statue, whether in the likeness of Nebuchadnezzar or some other deity, would have demonstrated worship to a God other than Jehovah. Nebuchadnezzar understood that what they will worship has the power to control how they will live their lives. 
And so it is this morning that while we are thousands of years removed from this event, and while the battlefield looks much different, I can promise you that this ages-old war is still raging on. As the enemy of our soul would love nothing more than to replace the object of our worship. The enemy of our soul would love nothing more than to redirect our attention off of Jesus Christ and onto the gods of this world. To hijack our priorities so that we are distracted with misplaced worship that positions our families to forget about the eternal and focus only on the temporal. There is warfare being waged for worship. Hear me this morning that whether you believe it or not and whether you'll accept it or not, when you walk out the back doors of this church today, there is an enemy that is after your worship. Young people, hear me today. When you walk back into your school tomorrow, there is an enemy that would love nothing more than to redirect your worship from Jesus onto the gods of this world. Why? Why? Why is worship so important? Simply because worship influences every aspect of your life. We find that what you will worship is going to influence what you believe. Where your time goes, where your attention goes, where your checkbook goes are all demonstrations of what you choose to worship. And it's going to influence what you believe. Worship will influence what you do. Worship will influence the way you act. And ultimately, what you worship will influence your eternity. We understand today the question is not, will you worship? That's not the question we're trying to settle today. Because the reality was that was settled many years ago. You were created, young person, to be a worshiper. There is something in the DNA of humanity that when God created mankind, he created them with a propensity to worship something. The question is not, will you worship? The question is, who or what is going to be the object of your worship? The question is, who is going to be the center of your focus? The question is, who's going to get your attention? The question, like we just saw depicted here, is are you going to give your focus to the things of this world? Are you going to keep your eyes on Jesus. I've come simply on this Sunday morning to remind somebody not to be ignorant to the war that is going on around us, but there is still only one who is worthy of worship. There is only one that if I'm going to give my worship to somebody, it's going to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's going to be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last, the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There is only one who is worthy of worship and somebody today needs to reaffirm in your mind that I'm going to give my worship to one and to one only it's going to be to Jesus Christ alone I will worship him alone I wonder for a second could we pause and just give the Lord worship in this place come on from the depths of your soul could you give the Lord worship today Thank you, Jesus. I think it's safe to say that it's likely today that whenever many of us in this room go home, it's safe to say that there might not be anybody in this room, or at least there's very few, that when you walk into your home, you may walk into your living room or your bedroom, and you look into the corner of that room that you would see some type of statue or figurine that you'd be tempted to worship before. It's likely that 
There's, there's not many people or nobody in this room that would be tempted to bow before a graven image of any type or form. We understand today that idols are not limited to small figurines. Idols are not limited to things that are made by human hands, but anything that stands between me and my God is an idol. Anything that I choose to give priority to over Jesus Christ is an idol and it is misplaced worship. What we find this morning is when we choose to worship at the altar of idols, we begin to open ourselves up to be controlled and ruled by the things that we worship. There are many things we could talk about today and I don't have time to go into many of them but I'll hit just a few for these young people. We understand that there are many young people today who are worshiping at the altar of entertainment. We are worshiping at the altar of ungodly entertainment. Now I ask the question, is it any wonder then that it's not very long before I begin to take my cues from what I'm being entertained by? Before long, my worldview begins to turn towards that of who or what I am watching. Before long, I become desensitized to the ungodliness I see played out on my phone or on my television. Before long, things that I knew were right and things I knew were wrong are all of a sudden in some kind of gray area because I've allowed myself to worship at the altar of entertainment. Before long, my appetite for the things of God begins to give way as I get used to feasting on the things of this world, on the entertainment before me. Before long, there's some of us that have a hard time coming to church on a Wednesday or on a Sunday and sitting through an hour-long church service because we're so used to being entertained by short, bite-sized clips of what we get on social media or on YouTube. Before long, I become ruled by the thing that I worship. Can I pause for a moment to remind us that the goal of the local church is not to entertain us. I hope you come to this church and you enjoy the church service. I know this team works incredibly hard to make sure you come and everything is done with excellence. But the goal of the local church is not that we come sit in padded pews and we look and say, entertain me, worship team, and preach preacher, but I'm going to sit here with my arms folded while you do all the work. The goal of the local body is not entertainment, but it's always been engagement. The goal of the church is to get you involved in the mission, to get you involved in the message to get you involved in what's happening in the world around you. So whenever we're used to being entertained by the media throughout the week, it makes it difficult for us to come because the church is not doing as good of a job entertaining me. When that's never been the mission of the church, it's all about engaging you in the mission of the kingdom. For others, they're tempted to worship at the altar of popularity. Before long, I begin to be ruled by other people's opinions of me. I begin to model my actions based on on what it's going to take to meet the expectations of those that I'm trying to please. I choose what I'm going to do, not based on whether it's right or wrong, but based on whether it's going to get me the like, whether it's going to get me the pat on the back, whether it's going to get me the affirmation I'm seeking. Whether it's going to allow me to fit in with the crowd I want to fit in with at school, I, I model my actions based on somebody else's opinion. When in reality, it's never been about your opinion. It's always been about one opinion. I'm only looking for one applause, and he has nail-scarred hands. My goal is not to please you or impress you. My goal is to be in alignment with what the Word of God says I need to be doing. So young person, we've got to refuse when we go to school to be ruled by somebody else's opinion of what you should be. 
And instead, we find our value. We find our purpose. We find who we're supposed to be at the opinion and the altar of Jesus Christ alone. We've got to make sure that our worship is not misplaced and we are not tempted to worship at false altars that would then begin to dictate how we are going to live our lives. For others still, we're tempted to worship at the altars of relationships, the altars of addictions, the altars of sexual pleasure, of money, of success, of achievement, of family. We could go on and on, the point being that anything that takes the place of God in my life is an idol and it is misplaced worship. But hear me this morning, that in this war for our worship, God is looking for a generation of young people and for some families and individuals who would redraw some lines in the sand that would say that when it comes to the battle of my worship, when it comes to where my priorities are going to be, I'm going to revitalize some statements like as for me and my house. When it comes to what's going to go on in my home, when it comes to what's going to go on in my life, you do what you're gonna do. Let them do what they're gonna do. But I'm redrawing a line in the sand that says we are going to worship one and one only and his name is Jesus Christ come on would you worship him right now come on would you worship him right now hallelujah 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 come on he's worthy he's worthy he's worthy we go back to the story of Shadrach Meshach and Abednego we find that it would have been very easy for them to get comfortable in Babylon and to forget that Babylon was never intended to be their home. We find that for these young men, it would have been easy for them to forget that Babylon was exile. Babylon was not the intended kingdom. Babylon was not supposed to be the plan, but they were living in exile. It would have been easy to get comfortable in Babylon. We find in Daniel chapter 1 that the first thing that happens whenever these young boys come into the palace is that the king begins to roll the red carpet out for them. They walk through the doors of the palace and a servant quickly comes and begins to display all the king's clothes and lets them know this can all be yours. They walk into the banquet hall and these boys are introduced to a feast the likes of which they've never seen before. They're given positions in the palace. They're given prominence and influence and fame and fortune. They're given everything that you might want. But thankfully, these boys understood that there is great danger getting comfortable in a place that we don't belong. There is great danger getting comfortable in Babylon. There is danger getting comfortable in easy living because what we find that our comfort can often become the victor, can often become the enemy of our consecration. What I recognize today that as I'm preaching to a North American church, I believe that our battle at times is much the same. That with all of our self-independence, with all of our wealth, with all of our prosperity, it would be easy at times for us to grow comfortable on earth, to get comfortable in Babylon. I shared this statement that I had read a couple years ago and then it came up on my timeline a couple weeks ago. It impacted me then and it impacted me again a couple weeks ago. And I may misquote it, but the intent of the preacher was to say something that most people have determined that they want heaven over hell. That's an easy choice. If I've got to pick between eternity and the presence of God and streets of gold and mansions and all that great stuff over an eternal eternity in a lake of fire, that's an easy choice. I want heaven over hell. 
But the problem is that there's many in the North American church that have yet to decide that they want heaven over earth. There's many in the North American church that we have not yet made up our mind that heaven is worth living for over any prosperity that I could have here on this earth. If we are not careful, we run the risk of getting comfortable in a place that we never were intended to belong. We were never intended to fit in. We are foreigners in a strange land. We are living for a different world. This place is not our home. Heaven is the end game. Heaven is the end goal. Nothing more and nothing less. So when my worship is on the battlefield, I'm going to worship him. If we're not careful, comfort will become the enemy of consecration. Comfort will become the enemy of conviction. Comfort will become the enemy of commitment. Comfort will become the enemy of calling. Some of us in this room know what it's like to be a young person. We remember what it's like to be in their shoes and go to a youth camp or a youth congress or be in a service or a youth revival. And we felt the call of God. We felt the nudge of the Holy Ghost. And maybe we went to an altar and we prayed a prayer like, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. Whatever you want me to say, I'll say. But then when we got up from a tear-stained carpet and we walked out the back doors of the church, we recognized that we went back into comfortable living. And our comfort victimized everything that God wanted to do in an altar. Young person, hear me today. There are going to be seasons when you're living for God that it will not be comfortable. There are going to be seasons when you're living for God that not everybody's going to understand why you're making the decisions that you're making. But hear me today, that is not an excuse to misplace your worship. That's not an excuse to get sidetracked because this world is not our home and this world is not the goal. Heaven, somebody say heaven. Heaven is the goal. It's dangerous getting comfortable in a place where we don't belong. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as word began to spread that day that construction was almost complete, I have to imagine that these teenagers had a few meetings on the subject of what they would do when the music began to play. Now, Scripture doesn't tell me this, but I have to imagine that in the distance when they could see that statue nearing completion, that those three boys had to get together. They had to begin to discuss what their response would be the moment the music began to play. Maybe they were stronger than I would have been, but I'll be honest, if I were in their shoes, I would have been tempted to play all the options. Knowing what was on the line, I'd have been tempted to ask some what-if questions. I might have been tempted to ask, well, guys, do you think it's really that big of a deal if we just bow once? Guys, do you think it's that big of a deal, at least on this first time, when, when everybody else is bowing, wouldn't it be better if we just didn't rock the boat? Wouldn't it be better if we just blended in and went with the flow and, and mirrored the crowd? Don't you recognize God has positioned us in the kingdom and surely he wouldn't want to put that at risk. If I were them, I might have been tempted to play the options. But I don't know what happens, but I, or what happened, but I might speculate that as they were meeting, maybe there was one of those boys that spoke up. Maybe it was a Bendigo. He says as they're playing these what-if options, maybe he speaks up and he says, well, you know, fellas, something just crossed through my brain. I remember something my mom and my dad used to do when I was young. That every morning when I would wake up, there was this passage of Scripture that we would quote. 
Every morning when I, or every night when we would go to bed, before they would tuck me in the bed, there was this thing that we would recite. I remember walking through the gates of my home and I could see it inscribed there. I remember watching my dad. He had that written on a little scroll and he was wearing it on his forehead, wearing it on his wrist. He said, I remember those words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, with all of thy soul, with all of thy mind, and with all of thy strength. I don't know, maybe one of the other boys spoke up and says, that reminds me, you're right. I remember the first two commandments that God gave Moses. The first one being, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second one being, thou shalt make no graven images, no statutes, no idols that you would bow down before. I don't know what their conversation was. But I do recognize that the decision was made long before they ever stood before King Nebuchadnezzar again. The decision had already been settled. Musicians can come and play softly. When we go back to Daniel chapter 3, verses 16, 17, and 18, we recognize that long before they had that temptation to bow, they had already settled the issue in their heart. They're standing in front of the ungodly king, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't have any need to answer you in this matter. Nebuchadnezzar, we don't have to be careful with what we're about to say. Nebuchadnezzar, I need you to understand I don't have to have a powwow with my buddies to figure out what my response is going to be. Nebuchadnezzar, I don't need a sidebar. I don't need a timeout. I don't need a moment. But Nebuchadnezzar, I already know what I'm going to tell you. Goes on in verse 17. He says, if you want to cast us into the fiery furnace, you do what you've got to do. But the God that we serve is able to deliver us. He's going to deliver us from your hand, O king, one way or another. And then verse 18. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture because it is a verse of such victory. It is a verse of such faith. When they look at this ungodly king and their their life is on the line, and they look at him and say, we know that God is able. But even if he doesn't, even if it doesn't go the way that we know it could go, I'm serving you notice, King Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm putting you on standby to know that there is nothing you can do that would get me to bow before your, your gods. There is nothing you could do to redirect my worship. The next thing we find is that this just doesn't sit well with the king. This man that's used to people bowing down when he says bow, he, he says jump, they say how high. Whatever he wanted, he was used to getting, and yet he runs into a buzzsaw and three young men who were determined to live for God. Bible says that his face is enraged. His countenance changed. He is furious. The next thing we read is that he gets his servants. He commands them to go to the furnace to strike it up seven times hotter. He said, where it was, it's not good enough. These guys are going to burn and they're going to burn good. Get it up seven times more. Bible says he instructs them to bind them by hand and feet and to take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the fiery furnace. Hear me, young person. And when you make up your mind that you're going to stand for God, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be without fire. When you make up your mind that your worship is only going to go to Jesus Christ, it does not necessarily mean that life from here on out is all roses and daisies and it's just a wonderful, happy existence. But when you make up your mind to stand for God, you can be assured that God is always going to stand with you. 
<laughs> See what Nebuchadnezzar, what Nebuchadnezzar thought is he thought he was punishing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He thought he was getting one up on them. He thought he was putting them in their place. But what he didn't recognize that day is he was simply being used to set the stage for them to prove to everybody that was around them why the God they serve was bigger than any God that the Babylonians could have. He was just setting the stage for the miraculous to happen. The Bible says in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 3 that Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire and he is astonished. He rises in haste and he spake to his counselors saying, didn't we cast three guys into the fiery furnace? Count them with me, guys. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. The end of these verse, evidently Nebuchadnezzar just had a bunch of yes men. I imagine that their backs are to the furnace because they're saying, true king, yes king, you're the man, yeah, you can count. That's great. There were three of them. You're right. We got three of those boys in that fiery furnace. But then verse 25, he keeps going and he says, but look. <laughs> look, he answers. <laughs> said, I know you told me there were three. But unless my eyes are deceiving me, I'm looking in the middle of the fire and I don't see just three, but I see four men who are loose, who are walking in the middle of the fire and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like unto the Son of God. Somebody needs to hear me this morning and not just our young people. That for somebody in this room that has been walking through a season of affliction, I need to remind you on a Sunday morning that the presence of fire does not indicate the absence of a Savior. That the presence of fire does not mean that God is somehow checked out of your situation. But instead, when you make up your mind that despite everything that's going on around me, despite what the culture is doing, despite what society is doing, I am going to stand for God then God takes his rightful position next to his child and he says if you're going to stand for me then you better believe I'm going to stand for you if you're going to fight for me then you better believe you're not in this thing alone but I'm going to fight right there with you if you're walking through the fire you're not going to do it by yourself but we're going to walk hand in hand into victory he's going to stand with you so we stand all over this house What's so interesting as we come to the conclusion of this story, the Bible tells us that Nebuchadnezzar all of a sudden gets some things in motion. He goes near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. Come here. He begins to bring them before all of his mighty men, all of his servants, all of his his high-profile people, and he begins to show them off. Verse 27 tells us that he gathered them together. They saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The heads of their hair was not, or the hair on their head was not singed. Their garments were not affected. The smell of fire was not on them. And then we find that Nebuchadnezzar, this ungodly Babylonian king, this king that didn't want anything to do with Jehovah, Nebuchadnezzar speaks up and says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, in Abednego, we find in this moment that the decree is reversed. And Nebuchadnezzar now says anybody who speaks negatively about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's who the fiery furnace is for. Uh, what does this tell me today? It tells me a few things. The first thing it tells me 
is to never underestimate the power of one person's dedicated worship. It tells me to never underestimate what God can do when you get one young person who makes up their mind that even if nobody else is going to worship, I'm going to worship. Even if nobody else is going to live holy, I'm going to live holy. Even if nobody else is going to pray, I'm going to pray. If you can just get one, all bets are off. (laughs) The second thing it tells me is that worship that is placed in the right place has the ability to influence the atmosphere of everything that is around us. What am I saying? I'm saying young person who is coming to church by yourself because your family has not yet been saved. Hear me this morning in the Holy Ghost that your commitment to worship God and God alone can mean the salvation of your family. I'm saying to a family today that you feel like your world is falling apart. Your marriage is struggling. Your home life is struggling. You've got out of control kids and you don't know what to do with them. If you can just begin to get an attitude of worship in your home, it can change the atmosphere. What would happen if we made up our mind that I'm not just worshiping on a Sunday. I'm not just worshiping on Wednesday. But we're going to live a lifestyle of worship. For somebody you don't enjoy your job, you don't like going to school, what would happen if our mentality changed? That when I go, this is just a new place for me to worship. This is just a new setting for me to give glory to God. What could God do with a handful of people that would be willing to worship? As we move to this altar call, what I wish I had right now is I wish I had one person. I wish I had one person that you're the one who feels like you've been in the fire. (laughs) You're the one that you feel like the enemy has been after your worship and the enemy's been after your song. I wish I had one, just one, who would take a step of faith out of your pew right now and would come down to an altar with hands lifted high as a declaration that enemy, you are not going to capture my worship. I wish I had some young people right now who would come with hands lifted and make a fresh commitment right now that it doesn't matter what goes on in culture around me. My worship is for one and for one only. Hear me today that if you are in this room and you have never received the baptism of the Holy Ghost in this atmosphere of worship, today is your day. I'm grateful for the three who received it last week, but there's no reason that you can't receive it this week. I would challenge you to come with arms lifted right now and begin to worship the name of Jesus. Come on, somebody begin to lift up your voice right now. Come on, somebody begin to lift up your voice. Come on, young man. Come on, young lady. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter what it sounds like. For just a moment, would you serve notice to the enemy that my worship is not for sale? My worship is not for sale. My worship is not an option. I don't have to think very hard about this. I don't have to think twice about this. But I've made up my mind that I'm going to worship Jesus and Jesus only. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Come on all over this house. Can we turn this sanctuary into an avenue of worship? 
Come on, no matter what you're walking through right now, let me be a voice of encouragement that would tell you that worship can unlock the key to your destiny. That worship can unlock victory in your home. That worship can break chains. And worship can loose everything that has been binding you. Would you begin to worship? Thank you for listening to this message. For more content, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at The Life Church KC. Reference the episode notes for more details.